Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Web3 Business Podcast, helping you navigate the future of business. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Web3 Business Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for innovative thinkers who want to know what works in the world of Web3. Today, I'm going to be joined by Tarek Nazlawi. And we're going to talk about the future of loyalty. And I think you're going to find this absolutely fascinating because Tarek used to work for Adidas. He was involved with the Into the Metaverse project. And we're going to talk about loyalty and brands. And even if you're not a big brand, I think you're going to find a fascinating unlock in today's interview. By the way, I'm at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter and at Web3 Examiner on Warpcast. And if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content because we have an all-star lineup coming your way. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do. Not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner. The best of the best of the guests that you hear on the Social Media Marketing Podcast not only teach at our conference, but they're also part of our secret society called the Social Media Marketing Society. Each month, our top-tier guests who have been on my show are invited to train inside our society for an exclusive group of marketers who are just like you. The training is designed to help you go from being a passive consumer of content to a marketer who is in active learning mode. So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Tarek Nazlawi. Helping you to simplify your Web3 journey, here is this week's Expert Guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Tarek Nazlawi. If you don't know who he is, he's the president of Science Magic Studios, an agency that helps consumer brands use Web3 to build stronger communities. He formerly led Web3 strategy at Adidas and launched the Into the Metaverse NFT project. Tarek, welcome to the show today. How are you doing today? I am doing really well. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here with you to, uh, to talk about this in the context of brands and everything. Really stoked. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you here today. Before we get into all the great stuff we're going to talk about, let's back up a little bit and let's hear your story. How did you get into Web3? How did you get into NFTs? Start wherever you want to start. Yeah, so I guess like to put a date on it, I really got into it in 2020. But the story is kind of really goes back a little bit further as to like, why all paths were kind of always going to lead here, if you know what I mean. 
look, I mean, in general, my kind of background is one of business model innovation, right? You know, I, I studied engineering. I went straight into strategy consulting with Boston Consulting Group, kind of doing the doing the thing, advising companies and what have you, which which I really enjoyed. But I really wanted to get into trying to figure out how you can get a big brands to do things better. And that's when I joined Adidas actually in 2011. And there was always this undercurrent of how does a brand do create more value for its consumers with less waste? You know, and I came at it from manufacturing, supply chain, processes and systems, all the things I knew about as an engineer. And about halfway through my time there is when things got really interesting because this idea of, you know, um, making more of what consumers want and less of what consumers don't want, which results in things like clearance of stuff that, you know, off-price stuff and what have you. I was like, we're not going to fix that unless we actually figure out how we create products. And so I, I went into the customization business. So I, I took over something called My Adidas at the time which we actually promptly closed down because the idea of customizing your own stuff, just to be honest, wasn't really that hot in say 2018, 2019. It was, there was a different way of consumers starting to feel a sense of identity and belonging to something bigger. And it was less about a one-to-one -one relationship with my product, but more about belonging to a community of people who see the same value in kind of the symbols that, that unite them together. And that's when I started looking at open source creation models and I made a pretty big left turn into, into digital innovation topics. At a brand like Adidas, that's a really interesting playground to play in. So we were thinking about how does a brand like Adidas, the size of Adidas, Adidas, actually, I'm sort of maybe, yeah. maybe I should, you know, make us, sure yeah. that, you know, <laughs> I'm being true to the original pronunciation. That's an interesting thing, right? To get a brand that size to figure out how do outside creators use the infrastructure of a really big company to almost build their own brands, to build their own audience, right? Like at the end of the day, does Adidas really have like the 100 best designers in the world? Like that's so unlikely. And, you know, from a, from a corporate perspective, mobilizing external creative capital was a very interesting idea, right? And the idea that it could almost become a little bit like, you know, Uber connecting passengers with drivers, like, or, you know, Airbnb connecting guests with hosts. Maybe Adidas could connect creators with their audiences because they've got infrastructure, they've got a bunch of digital touch points, they got a, a manufacturing engine and a product development engine that can, which is very difficult to replicate. So that was a really interesting idea. Then 2020 came along, right? And it's just like, okay, innovation back burner, which we'll definitely come back to because, you know, I know one of the things we'll talk about is how do you go about experimenting in the space? And then I went on to lead the fashion e-commerce business, actually running the launching and running the, the Adidas confirmed app, which by the way, had some great news come out today. They're doing token gating commerce now. So another, another thing to come back to. And that was great. I mean, it, you know, it became almost a billion euro business, but I could never quite get the innovation bug out of my system once I knew that's what I was put here to do. And so on the side of that, in 2020, completely unrelated to Adidas, I was trying to figure out, like, how am I going to pay for my kids' future? You know, like, I was, I was like, I should probably have some, like, stocks or a brokerage account or something like this, right? Like, shouldn't I be more financially intelligent? And it was actually through that journey that I ended up, you know, stumbling on a platform where I could trade crypto and stocks at the same time. And actually, in 2020, especially Q4, stocks were boring and crypto is very interesting. So I ended up really going down that rabbit hole of like, what is money anyway? You know, and what was Bitcoin invented to do? Is Bitcoin the same as blockchain? And that's where it all began. I stopped watching Netflix. I, I stopped like consuming any other content other than, you know, basically YouTubes and books on this stuff, which was great because, you know, I was at a stage in my career where I like, you know, the, the, I kind of knew how to do my, my job. And this was a great way for me to kind of get some growth. And then completely in parallel to that, come Q1 2021, NFTs, which I'd been learning a lot about in 2020 and 2021, 
really kind of had like a proper, you know, the first proper sort of tissue paper fire hype, if you know what I mean, since CryptoKitties back in 2017. It was when Beeple, I think, was was happening. That was when all of a sudden there was a shed load of inbounds to the brand, like stuff coming to our boards, to our chief digital officer, to our brand, like to our business units about athletes or partners being like, you know, could we do something with this thing? Like, what's your position? And then, you know, the chief digital officer being asked, you know, yes, what's our strategy on NFTs and blockchain? And, you know, we all kind of look at each other going, there's no head of that here. And I'm fortunate that at that time, you know, I think I had enough credibility and experience to be able to be like, look, you know, I can, I can sort of definitely take a point of view on this thing. And I teamed up with a woman called Erica Wicksneed, who was brand new at the company at the time. And my partner in crime as well on running the confirmed, you know, premium streetwear business. And we decided, well, why don't we just strike up a task force? Like, this is too good a thing not to take a proper look at. And it was great to have Erica, you know, new to the brand in a marketing role, coming from a tech background also, who was willing to kind of, you know, break a few eggs around, you know, what would be considered as potentially a new way to, to bring some, some interest and hype and more forward-looking stuff around the brand, especially because Adidas has always been a collaborator brand. All that stuff around open source creation, how do you have outside people contribute to the brand was, you know, had been waiting for that moment, to be honest. And, you know, and this whole NFT thing seemed like it was maybe the missing medium. And so we wanted to just do one experiment, you know, like one thing. Let's just launch an NFT collection, which is redeemable for some cool stuff because people know Adidas for making cool stuff. And that's where it started. You know, this was also around the time that Bored Apes were just minting for the very first time, you know, completely different stage of its life cycle to where the, to the Yuga empire is, is now. And Pixel Vault and G Money, like, like a guy in our team, his name's Ben, Ben White, was, you know, on Twitter just jamming with these guys and saying, should we do something? And that's how those connections got made. The timing was great. Um, but we soon realized, you know, as we started to crystallize what the plan was for this thing, firstly, there were a lot more things than we'd considered. So I think we'll talk about that when we come to like, how does a brand experiment in this space? Um, but also that there's a lot more to this than just an NFT that you redeem for some stuff, right? Like what's going to happen here? And I remember saying this in July, 2021 to our chief digital officer and the head of the lifestyle business, which is, you know, like a 10 billion euro business where this is all going to go guys is that eventually our membership will be powered by these digital assets, right? I don't know when, but like, mark my words, we'll have a conversation down the line where our whole membership and loyalty program will be powered by this stuff because we're trying to do brand partnerships and it's hard. We're trying to have direct relationships with consumers, but it's really expensive to require them. And this stuff is the answer. I can't explain it more than this kind of gut feel for now. And that's the thing, that's the, ironically, I think is the direction that a lot of things will take here. So we launched the thing in February, uh, sorry, in December, 2021. And, you know, at that point. Was the thing into the metaverse or was it something else? Yeah. Yep. The into the metaverse collection, right? The 30,000 NFTs, original phase one stuff, redeemable for, you know, the tracksuit and the hoodie and, and the beanie, three, three items, which were exclusively made for this. There were a lot of, you know, challenges, by the way, I'm doing like a global drop when everything's set up regionally and, and uh, you're making this product specifically for people who have never put in an email address, right? Like there's a few things, a few kinks to work out. But the drop itself was really well-timed. It was right at the peak of, you know, the, the Q4 madness in 2021. ETH was 4,500 bucks back then. And so, you know, the, the PR headlines, which I think is all anybody knew what to write at the time was X makes Y amount of money doing NFT drops. Like that was all the PR said. That was all the headlines said back then. It's not even true, by the way. Adidas split that revenue four ways with amongst Adidas and the four partners. But at that point, you know, then, you know, 
people on the board, on the executive board and um, supervisory board and investors and things like that were sort of, you know, sending messages to very senior people in our company saying, hey, this this looks cool. You know, where, where's this going? So it was only after the fact that we were actually explaining to the, to the board of the company, like what had just happened. Because, you know, we in Q4, by the way, is a very bad time to be distracting people like from your legal team and your finance team when you're trying to close, you know, what was a really difficult year. But we had the air cover to do it. And then we went through that with the board and we described, you know, you know how big an opportunity that is. And, um, you know, not just from a you sell it and you get money, but like this is a different way to engage. And it's worth really investing in uh, figuring what this, this means for out for the brand, especially because, you know, we happen to have been a first mover at the time of doing something directly. And uh, yeah, that's actually was the birth of the Web3 studio, which exists. You know, I'm talking to the team right now. Erica leads that. Um, there's proper people in place, but you know, I chose to take a slightly different path at that point. And uh, I was approached by a guy called uh, Raul Pal. Yeah, I know him. You, I guess, yeah, yeah. He's, he's many of you, many of your listeners will know him, him and Kevin Kelly from Delphi Digital and David Pemsel, the CEO of Science Magic uh, Inc., which is a strategic and creative company for brands, you know. The three of them together were putting this project together called Science Magic Studios, right? And when uh, they reached out about it, I thought this is really interesting because what they're, what they're basically trying to build is exactly the team that, man, I wish we had had through the course of 2021, right? Like understanding what it means to create a digital experience, but also understanding what it means to have, you know, a token architecture and community management as well. And thinking like properly around, you know, how the creative of, around this medium of the NFT can be fully exploited, as well as some really solid strategy and program management. And like that felt like, you know, I was looking at my blueprint here that we were talking to the board about and looking at this. And I'm like, I think this feels like a really appealing opportunity to try and figure out how to actually make this a repeatable practice and be on that vanguard of how this can create scalable brand uh, value for brands and their communities. Because as everybody on this show will no doubt talk about is, you know, we're all trying to figure out how to onboard the next billion people or whatever, right? So that was a really important like left turn for me. And I joined back in last summer. And honestly, it's been, uh, it's been a joy and pretty different to corporate life as well since then. Well, first of all, that's a fascinating story. Thank you so much for sharing it. I mean, I, every piece of me wanted to just dig in deep on that story, but there's so much more that we're here to talk about today. You know, there are plenty of people listening right now. Some of them work for brands. Some of them are thinking about starting a brand new business. Some of them are even creators and stuff, but let's, let's focus on the business folks, the brands and the businesses. Maybe there's people in marketing departments listening to this right now. Why should they pay attention to web three? What do you want to say to those who are unsure or skeptical about maybe why they ought to focus in and listen to, you know, what you have to say and really where this industry seems to be going, this new industry that seems to be being born right in front of our eyes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll do the short version and I'll unpack it. And, and, and the short version is, you know, if you spend your time and energy thinking about how to attract the attention of consumers, how to get them to engage in your brand and how to keep them in the ecosystem of your brand, then you can't not pay attention. And I think anybody working in that space, you know, we were doing this for the confirmed app as well, right? Like, how do you, you know, market in the right places to get the right, most cost-effective downloads? Um, what kind of campaigns will help us to get the right kind of, you know, earned media? Uh, how do we use our own touch points the best? You basically now have a new medium to work with is kind of the, the long and short of it. And, you know, there are pressures in this job. You know, it's getting a lot more expensive to figure out how to acquire people. And, you know, brands nowadays are competing with 
you know, I say, I don't want to use legacy brands. It just sounds so like pejorative, but if you grew, if your brand grew up in the paradigm where your relationship is producer consumer, I have IP and I make a product. I try and market that to build cultural capital and demand. And you come along and buy that as a consumer. There are brands starting up now, which look more like kind of individuals or people or, you know, the whole creator economy is kind of based on this idea is that people starting from the other end of the spectrum. I first have a community and then that community is what's helping me build my cultural capital. And from that, I can actually launch products and build IP. And that is an extremely powerful way around to do things because you create a feeling of belonging um, at the outset, right? And if you're coming from the other direction, it's a little bit more like, how do I now create the same kind of emotional connection as that? So if it's getting more expensive and your experience is not necessarily emotional enough, then this is definitely a place to pay attention. In the same way that, you know, when Web2 and social media and all that stuff came about, it was like, is it going to be a thing? You probably had like an intern doing your social page or whatever, and it's now like an industrialized engine. This is that phase right now. And, you know, I would just say we know enough now to know that the medium is here to stay. What we don't know enough about is exactly the best use cases, which are kind of off the shelf, which become standard, which means now is the time to sort of actually try and take a little bit of a lead and um, and position your brand in, in a way which can speak to this audience of Gen Z and Gen Alpha behind them. So that's the reason why I think there's like, I know we're going to unpack a little bit more, but because I think, you know, for me, this really comes down to what the future of consumer engagement and loyalty is really going to look like. Yeah. And I want to echo something you just said that I think is so important for everyone to understand. The days of getting millions of dollars and then going out and doing market research and creating products and then finding an audience for that product are getting completely flipped on their head. You know, Web3 is a communal, community-first thing, and the future brands of the world are being born right before our eyes. And they're tiny little communities of token holders and NFT holders that are all shared around a common vision and goal, and they're literally creating things because they've got this common shared interest. And it is so antithetical to the way traditional businesses are born. Yet it is literally, we're going to look back 10 years from now, and some of the most fastest growing companies in the world and brands we've never heard of before are going to pop out of these little tiny communities and brands need to pay attention to this because this will be a long-term opportunity to them, or it'll be a long-term threat to them, depending on how they lean in. And I feel like you're completely right in this. And I'm seeing so many fascinating entrepreneurs doing things right now that simply wouldn't have been possible for them to do just a few years ago. I want to talk about loyalty right now. You know, you brought up the word loyalty a lot and Let's talk about the state of loyalty in a non-Web3 world, in the Web2 world, which is most of the world, right? Like, how does loyalty work right now? We'll get to how it's going to change and how it's in the process of changing. But what is it about loyalty and the state of loyalty right now? Let's dig in on that a little bit in this world of Web2. Anything I say here is an invitation to a conversation with anybody who's working in this space, right? I'll give my perspective on this from from having like done that at Adidas, you know, with, with premium streetwear consumers. But before we get into a bit too mechanical about it, like let's just think about the word for a second, right? You know, when you think about the word loyalty in the context of a value, it kind of has an emotional index, you know, right up here. You know, like when you think about what your loyalty or who you're loyal to, really, not what your loyalty, but who, what comes to your mind? Probably your spouse, your closest friends, maybe your football team. You know, you've probably got a sense of like affiliation or legacy loyalty with like your alma mater or whatever it might be. 
These are like the most valuable relationships, you know, in our lives. But when we think about loyalty in the commercial context, like where's the emotional index? Like, you know, pick your point on the scale. It's not up here. It's somewhere, you know, down here because we mostly think of loyalty from the aspect of the, the kind of the corporate, which is I will trade a little bit of margin for repeat custom because it's convenient for me not to have to recapture you. It's more cost. It's more, it's actually less wasteful, which I love, by the way, like the whole story of, you know, more, more value, less waste is definitely appeals here because the less money people are spending getting people's attention, the more money is going into investing in advancements in products and services, which is fantastic. But let's just say that like, there are probably few loyalty schemes that, that we are part of or have been invited to that really create an emotional connection beyond the one of convenience. And in the context of what we just talked about with respect to, you know, the competition, which is, you know, belonging first, cultural capital second and product third, then it feels like a vulnerable position to be in, right? If your loyalty program doesn't create that connection. And, you know, often, so Starbucks Odyssey, for example, which was kind of one of the first, uh, the first brands to really sort of put out there, you know, what the the first blueprint of what a Web3 powered loyalty program might look like in, in its beta phase. The question for Starbucks was quite frequently, but you guys have one of the best loyalty programs in the world. You know, like it's literally like lauded as a benchmark. It's almost like an entirely like financial model, actually, for running the company because it's people loading up, they're spending, they're putting cash in your balance sheet before they've even bought coffee just for the convenience of having, you know, those, the, you know, turning up and having your coffee ready for you and what have you. And the answer is because there wasn't enough of an emotional connection. So even one of the most advanced loyalty programs in the world is still looking for that level of emotional connection. And from our perspective, when we think about it, we're like, well, there's definitely an opportunity here because all of the value that's been accumulated in those companies that currently have an attitude towards direct relationships with consumers, there's an opportunity to figure out how to use this new medium to really take that to the next level and not just defend their position, but actually unlock value, which has previously been trapped. Because once you start including people in your value creation process, your company can become more than it was before. You know, what would, what would Ralph Lauren look like, Ralph Lauren, if they weren't making suits and fashionable apparel? You know, like, what does that brand stand for? You know, there's a lot more of a lifestyle statement, which we currently only see come through in like marketing collateral and images and what have you. But when you start thinking about what it would mean to belong to a Ralph Lauren, a Ralph Lauren network, you can start to imagine that there'd be other angles of that proposition and there'd be other ways for that brand to manifest its ultimate purpose other than just the core product that they currently have. I think that's a very exciting time. Not everybody's going to make it, you know, not everybody's going to go through that kind of innovation curve. Yeah, I want to I want to get some clarity on this a little bit. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that with traditional loyalty programs, quote unquote, they typically give someone a discount in exchange for being a regular customer or they give them something free, right? Like you buy this many, you get one free, right? Like we think about your local yeah. yogurt shop or whatever, right? Where you go in and if you get five meals or whatever, you get your fifth one free, right? And the problem with this is it seems like the reward is either uh, a discount or the reward is something free, which doesn't create that emotional connection that you're talking about, right? Which is the problem with a lot of the loyalty programs in web too, right? It's just a transaction is what I'm hearing you say, right? And how can we transcend that to have real loyalty? Is that really what I'm hearing you say? 
Yeah, in a way. But like, I, I would rather not think about it as like, that's not right. And this is right. I'd rather think about it as like a pyramid, which you stack, you know, like, okay, if you think about almost like, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of way of thinking about it, then there's always a case for value in part of a loyalty program, right? The question is, if there are other brands out there who are successfully doing this layer, but also creating a layer of a little bit more self-realization or a little bit more contribution or belonging, right? Things that ultimately feel a little bit more like, you know, a group of people I want to spend time with, as opposed to something which is convenient for me not to switch from, right? So I'd say it's not an either or. It's just a case of like, the loyalty paradigm in my view so far has just been a little bit incomplete. And I think now there's an opportunity to start thinking about completing that, that framework because we have a medium that I can give to you or, you know, a brand can give to its consumers or even sell to its consumers, which is now a different type of connective tissue other than the product that I'm or service that I'm, I'm serving them with. Right. And that means that like now I can actually try and figure out like, how do I sort of, like give people these items which can be rewards which have value in their own right outside my ecosystem they can be keys to unlock experiences inside my ecosystem they can almost just be symbols of status and recognition which almost form like a currency which surrounds my brand and it's not just something which can work inside my brand it's something that which can potentially work outside my brand so the value of belonging to my network as a brand becomes a lot higher because an NFT is something which can cross walled gardens. You know, like we've been trained to build wall gardens a la Apple for the last two decades, right? And what this medium does is it actually, you know, goes outside walled gardens, which kind of seems like antithetical in a way. But, you know, if you're belonging to a network, the, the, the value of belonging to that network is the network value of the brands that, that can connect you with all these things outside. So I do think that this medium is a very important medium in getting a different kind of flywheel spinning around acquisition, engagement, and retention, and ultimately contribution of the community to a brand's direction. Now, the questions you normally get around this kind of stuff are, yeah, but you know, how, how big a community can you really manage? Or does everybody really want to contribute to your brand's direction? And these are all fantastic questions, you know, like, like not every consumer is really going to end up being an active member of a thriving community, but some are. And the cost of not figuring out how to engage and include and shape the direction of your company, listening to that voice could be really high when others are doing it, other brands are being born that way. So, so that's my, more my thing about it. It's like it, the, the NFT and Web3 offer opportunities to complete the loyalty paradigm as opposed to completely, you know, throw out the old and, and, and swap it out with a new. You know, for those that listen to this podcast and don't know, I run a company called Social Media Examiner, which I founded in 2009. And back in the early days of social media, community was a big deal. And typically community meant like a Facebook group. And typically you would have brands, some brands who would have these communities of people like Fiskers who make scissors, right? And they would have these crafts people in there and they would show off the crafts that they were making and people would just love to be part of it, just to be recognized as part of the community. But the challenge with these communities is they were built on a platform that the brand did not own, right? Facebook owned it. Mark Zuckerberg owned it. In addition, people in the beginning were excited to be in a place where they could share feedback with the community and get some of their crafts shown inside the community. But over, over time, it kind of became less and less interesting. And what I like about what I think you're talking about with loyalty is this is a way to create something that the brand 
essentially can build independent of a centralized platform like Facebook, right? And they still have to use these tools like Discord or whatever to be able to pull this stuff off. But I would love you to kind of like look into the future, like five years, 10 years from now and say, what is loyalty going to look like if everything you're talking about becomes true? Yeah, I'd say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this probably more the engineer's way than the creator's way. But this is this is how I think about it. Like loyalty is going to look a lot more like gaming in the future, but it's not necessarily going to look like video games. Right. Like that's and this pick a time horizon, you know, because we could start debating, you know, how real is the metaverse and, you know, are we all going to be living in ready player one world? And and to be honest, like I don't usually kind of spend too much time getting deep in in engaging in that stuff at the moment, because my view is just just the digital assets alone, NFTs and fungible tokens of all the things in Web3 right now. Even with a mobile phone or a laptop or whatever, any normal device that we're using, we can create fundamentally different experiences between brands and their communities without having to worry about 3D glasses or whatever, right? So when I say we're going to borrow from gaming, I don't mean that we're all going to be walking around like a, a you know virtual environment 24-7. And the components that I think that we're going to borrow from gaming kind of fit into this flywheel. I probably should have sent you the picture of this, Michael, but there's kind of four aspects to it that we think are really important. One of them is that brands will just be more playable than they are today, right? Today, the way that you engage with a brand is mostly, you know, commercial, right? And if they have a really great loyalty program, they'll remember things like your birthday and, you know, make you feel a little bit known. They'll present you with relevant offerings, more personalized stuff. Like that's all kind of today in the Web2 world, what good looks like. I think that a playable brand means um, almost having a little bit more jeopardy in your relationships, right? In fact, taking a cue from the sneaker world is not a bad thing, right? The sneaker game has always been a game, right? How do you find out what's hot? How do you find out when it's dropping? Are you going to try and cop or are you going to drop? You know, these are, you know, once I've managed to cop the sneaker, am I going to keep it? Am I going to rock it? Am I going to stock it? You know, like, am I going to wear it or am I going to flip it? Like that kind of bringing together of the commerce world and a cultural conversation in a way where there are multiple decisions for a consumer to make. That's what, you know, we've been thinking about gamification for a while, but the idea of like play to me is extremely important, right? So you said there are four things for the play. You said brands are more playable. What else under the gaming thing? Brands are more playable, right? The second thing is, you know, just think about any game that's worth playing, right? You don't play alone, right? It's usually a multiplayer game, right? Just think of any Fortnite, Roblox, whatever. And that's the community part, right? So what does playability look like when you bring many-to-many relationships into it? You talked about the Fisker Scissors thing. People loved that feeling of belonging and that there were other humans to connect with. When there's community action, it amplifies how playable the game is. Now, if you can successfully engage people through that process and figure out who's got something to offer in this whole picture, then you can start thinking about element number three, which is creativity. How does a brand plus a subset of the community which is engaged decide what they should be doing together. So for example, like if we wanted to get more women into sport in China, like what would that really look like? If we wanted to figure out what the future of retail should really look like in the metaverse or the real world, like we don't just want to sort of mobilize the people that we already have in our company. Like there are people who are literally committed to this mission. The question is why would they be so committed and care about what you're trying to do? And that's element number four, which is ownership, right? Digital assets provide that last missing linchpin, which is there's an asset that I can own. Now, the question around like ownership and like what what is it that you're owning? Is that something which literally is like stock? So, you know, 
Gary Gensler and SEC and all that kind of stuff would certainly not like to see any brands moving in that direction. But there's certainly something which gives you access and credentials, right? And access to other forms of value inside the brand and outside the brand, right? And actually, for a subset of your community, that's really, really valuable. And potentially, there is a financial element to it. But from our perspective, financialized behavior, you know, when you think about loyalty, there's two aspects of it. There's love and there's money, right? As long as you're starting with the love part, the money part will follow. And you, you should always make sure that like the relationship is equitable in the same way that a marriage is about love and money, you know, like you can't really separate the two in the most productive relationships and the most valuable relationships. But with those four things, you've got something that you can really get right and get a flywheel spinning. If it's playable, this community we can create together and share in the value of that. Well, guess what? I want to keep playing and I want to keep going around. So I think loyalty programs that really, really work are the ones that have that level of stickiness in it. And I think that the NFT medium has a role to play at every single one of those four pieces, right? From collaborating with brands outside your, your own four walls, this is a great lubricant to that, which means that the value of your game is just, it's just that much more playable. Orchestrating communities, orchestrating and potentially even being the carrier of creativity. Think about like digital wearables or art or whatever it might be. And then distributing the value of that. Like we haven't had that so far. The only thing we've had to exchange is cash and products or services. And now we have this new thing. And that new thing to me is the connective tissue, which allows us to go round and round that, that flywheel. And, and that's what I think is, is really exciting. Let's just say though, like that is hypothesis, right? Like I'm not going to lie. Like that is hypothesis. I, I love it. One of the questions that's coming to my mind is, which division of the company is responsible for something like this? Because this is brand new, right? I'm sure you're talking to yeah. clients about this. Like, is this the marketing department? Is this the finance department? Like, who is responsible for something like this? Yeah, that is, <laughs> that's so true. And so, you know, like we're building a business right now, right? Like an advisory and an agency business. And I can tell you from, you know, empirical experiences, we speak to CEOs, CMOs, chief digital people, innovation people consumer engagement people, sometimes in the same room, sometimes not. So, and that's kind of just going to be part of the course for a little while and, and forget Web3 for a minute and think about membership and loyalty. The conversation had already started about who owns this. Even at Adidas, like the relation, the ownership of the, the membership program has kind of moved from a brand program, to a brand ownership to a sales ownership, and then from a digital ownership within sales to a more cross-channel ownership inside sales. Truth be told, like unless everybody is thinking about, you know, which products for which people and which services for which people, or how do we involve these people at all parts of the business, then you never really actually have the consumer or the community at the center of your brand. So there's there's going to be always a very natural matrixed way that these things happen. And the most important thing is who are the people that you have on the team that are playing that role of innovation champion or even operational champion, because, you know, working at Adidas, or I'm sure at Nike or a Starbucks or anywhere, the organizations are fairly matrixed. And there's always a sense of like clarity of mission coming, you know, fairly sort of like from the top. And then collaboration, horizontal leadership in the middle, which really makes the difference between amazing companies and average companies. And I, I don't think this is really going to be any different, quite frankly. Uh, it just needs to be something which, if the community or consumer is at the heart of your company, then so is loyalty. And if loyalty is, then this digital asset stuff should be. So why are, why is the C-level buying into this? Like what's the, I think I know, but I want to know from your perspective, like 
are they going in on this because this is going to solve one of the biggest challenges they have with customer retention or is there something else going on here like what's the the killer argument as to why they're proceeding with this kind of stuff so it's not one story i'm sorry to to uh to not give you the simple answer yeah i think i think i, I will say this like the trend that i'm seeing that we're seeing at science magic studios is that the argument about consumer engagement and loyalty is really taken hold right not just because there's a couple benchmarks out there but because there are real business challenges in acquiring and retaining consumers and also because it's a language that actually we've already been talking about for the last 10 15 years so the question is less about like hold on a minute nfts and loyalty i don't get it it's just like but what's different like tell me what what's different about this kind of nft stuff like why does this turbo because we have a loyalty program like should we not be happy with that one right and that's the conversation i want to be in but the winning arguments are kind of different like for some brands it's we want to elevate our brand and we think that this might be a way for us to create an environment or an artifact which helps us an experience which helps us elevate our brand especially in luxury right so you know in, in that side of things it's a bit like well here's a new canvas to paint on or a new paintbrush to paint with and so we should be expressing our brand values in this medium because like what if we weren't doing that who would we be it's kind of a different you know that's a bit more like the gucci kind of end of the spectrum right from a a cmo argument the loyalty one i think is is a real winner very few are coming at it from a we really want to engage our community better there's always like it's it's usually community is a subset of engagement and lifetime value and i have yet to actually i would say find a cfo who is let's say completely comfortable with the narrative because it's a little like well, if you're going to sell a product, then this is a new revenue stream. Wow, there's like this, this uncaptured cultural value that we have that we can capture on this thing. So it goes from the ether to our P&L. That sounds great, right? But the financialization of behaviors with your community around, you know, with these assets, I think probably many of your audience will be kind of aware that there's this constant tension between the love and the money side, right? Like the idea that behaviors are super financialized and speculative, it's not real, right? Like, for most people in a brand, they'd be like, but who genuinely cares about what it is that we're trying to do as a brand or make as a brand, as opposed to speculate? Um, which brings me nicely to another category, which is we just want a little bit of, you know, like hype and PR, and this looks like a good way to do it, which are not conversations that we generally take that far, because from our perspective, you know, we're a business that's trying to sort of demonstrate that there is locked value, which can be unlocked, right? As opposed to there are stunts which can be pulled right? Like there's plenty of stunts that will be pulled. And our view is, you know, in 12 months, we need to be talking not just about Starbucks and, and Nike and even what Lacoste, I think has been pretty cool, what they've done in retail. We need like a dozen examples of what good really, really looks like here we, in ways which show up in either straight away on the P&L, but more likely in consumer lifetime value. And the consumer lifetime value thing is, is something I find myself spending more and more time on because lifetime value is an idea that pre-existed Web3, but it's still not necessarily the industry standard of thinking about if I pay X for a consumer, it would be worth it because I predict that this segment and this region could be worth this much future income for me. That's not yet um, like bedded in everywhere, right? Like certainly when we talk to football clubs, for soccer clubs, for example, right? Like revenue per fan is one thing, but the idea of lifetime value you know, these are small businesses. They look like big brands because they have this global cultural currency, but like they're not the most like they're not 
the people driving the cutting edge of marketing, right? So the idea of lifetime value and the whole idea of this flywheel and loyalty and like future future value you can get from it is another parallel conversation which I'm really interested in driving because I think with or without Web3, the idea of investing to acquire and retain in order for future value is just another way of managing your business. And, and I hope that that resonates with some of the marketers in your, in your audience too. Okay, so some people are going to say, all right, I am sold on this concept. I don't know where to start. What do we need to be thinking about if we're going to start exploring the possibility of developing some sort of a Web3 based program with a loyalty angle on it? Like what, where do we begin? So, I mean, we're going to get onto the part where I just say, call me, right? But like, um, I think if I, if I sort of <laughs> that, now. That's coming at the end. <laughs> let, let's do, let's do, let's do a little role play here though, right? So, so Michael, like, cause usually if there's, if there's somebody listening to this, they're going to be somebody who's on a, on a path of exploration. And I would say, if you are listening to this, you you could probably already consider yourself like a potential champion inside an organization for trying to think about what tools you now have at your disposal. So step one is recognize who are, maybe you and maybe a cohort of people around you, who are the champions of trying to do something different? Sometimes that's consolidated an innovation team who you know might be usually off in a corner doing R&D, might be more heavily integrated into your business. It just doesn't matter what badge you're wearing. Right. Like it doesn't matter at Adidas. Like I was responsible for the fashion e-commerce business and Erica was responsible for brand marketing and we did an open call and we got people from everywhere in the business, from legal to content planning, to developers, to in the app, to tax, you know, like it was really like who you want to do the, put up the bat signal and figure out who really cares. Right. For a start, because if you don't have momentum around anything you're trying to innovate, you'll be lonely. Right. So step one, identify who are those who are those champions. And then I think step two is in order to look around you and consider the conditions to be fertile for you trying to do something forward thinking, you need a minimum critical mass of appetite to to innovate, right? What do you mean by minimum critical mass? Yeah. I mean, does my company, what's my company's general attitude towards innovation? Like, are we quite traditional, in which case we're going to need a lot of time? Or are we actually quite experimental, in which case, like, my, my concern is less about, you know, it's probably already come up, quite frankly, and it's more about what the other things are that we're competing against. And it's also like now some companies are really thriving and some are struggling. So picking your timing and your audience is what these matter. This is like the 10 years of corporate innovation that I'm speaking, not driving Web3. This is really about understanding the conditions for success. And then I'd say like, you know, if you're in a position where like there's a really appetite, so okay, well, what should we do then? Now we're at the next step, which is, what do we actually think is the size of bet that we think that we want to place here? Like, is this a company, is my team or my company one that wants to go big? Or do we want to start small, right? And usually the advice is think big and then start small, right? Like that's, that's quite a well-coined phrase. And try and figure out ways to do things which, if this particular activation is successful, the proof points from this help to demonstrate the case to do more of X or Y or Z. Right. And that's really important. And actually, it, to be honest, if it wasn't for that kind of attitude, I think we would really have struggled with the into the metaverse thing. Right. Like, for example, I told you, we didn't talk to the board about it until after the fact. Right. There's lots of people who have been like, oh, well, we need to get permission from X and Y and Z before we even consider this. And we were like, if we try and explain this thing before we, you know, before we've done anything, this is going to be a pop. This is going to be a no. You know, this is going to be a what are you doing? This is a ask for forgiveness later kind of situation, right? One hundred percent, 
right? And, you know, I won't lie, like, you know, there was, I had 10 years of organizational capital built up in Adidas and a great reputation. And I, I was a little nervous about how it was going to go. Like, don't get me wrong. And we had to sort of cash in some goodwill in order to kind of see that through. So these are like, this is all about how you duck and die from a corporate innovation standpoint. But the, the difference between now and back then is that there was no blueprint. There were no, there was no best practice that there wasn't a whole group of people who have been through stuff before. There weren't good examples and bad examples. Now there are, right? Just as I said, like, you know, I, SMS was the team I wish that I had had at the time. Well, there's a lot of accumulated experience. And also there's a lot more stuff that you can do off the shelf, right? If you want to sort of put your brand IP together with some R and Mint and Open Edition, like this is something that can happen in, you know, a couple of weeks and not like six months or what have you. So I think like thinking about it from an innovation standpoint, picking fertile soil and trying to fertilize that soil to, so that you can you know get your seed kind of planted and picking the size of bear is the most important thing uh, but then if you're serious about doing the right thing and doing the thing right don't do it alone is the other piece of advice right like and in general i think most people are, are, are pretty good about that there's one thing which i think i would say is definitely worth a thought because there are some like not every brand is the same you know i talk i talk about actually brands and ip owners right so for example as a football team a brand or an IP, like you kind of, you think of these things almost interchangeably, but the difference is that, you know, if I'm actually thinking about, I have a core business of running a sports team, for example, right. Or making luxury cars or whatever it might be. And anything which is not my core business, I have a licensing model so I can get revenue from the cultural capital that I have as a brand. There's not that many examples of where licensing your brand to a third party NFT experience provider have resulted in much good stuff. That's one thing I would say. And I think the reason for that is, let's go back to basics. This is about direct, meaningful, and valuable connections. And unless there's actually a direct and meaningful connection, it's very difficult for that relationship to eventually become valuable, right? So when I see sort of the licensing deal version, I'm usually like, all right, so we need to kind of like just sort of, you know, squint a little bit harder to sort of see if we think this is something that's really going to work. If there's a genuine and authentic connection, then I think you know you're on the you're on the right track. Those would be my pieces of advice. There, that was a long answer to a short question, Michael. Oh, those were those were really really useful answers, Tarek. If people want to connect with you, do you have a preferred social? And if they want to check out your company, Science Magic Studios, where do you want to send them? You can find me on Twitter at Tarek Naslawi, and I'm sure that'll be on the on the print of a thumbnail here. So why, why don't you spell it out for the audio audience? Really? Yeah, sure. So it's at T-A-R-E-Q-N-A-Z-L-A-W-Y. That's my first name, last name. And you can find us, our website at www.sciencemagicstudios.xyz. And actually Science Magic's on Twitter too, at Science Magic XYZ as well. And we would love to obviously hear from anybody who's thinking about this stuff. And uh, yeah, you are, you are not alone on this journey. Let's just put it like that. Tarek, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us. We're way better because of it. Michael, I really appreciate you having me and I'll definitely be yeah, paying attention to the other episodes that you're dropping here because uh, I think this is a really fantastic voyage that you're taking people on. So, so kudos for that. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash W72. And if you're new to the show, would you be sure to follow us? And would you let your friends know about this show? I'm at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter and at Web3Examiner on Warpcast. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Web3 Business Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may Web3 continue to change your world. Your world.
The Web3 Business Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. The information provided in the Web3 Business Podcast is provided solely for educational purposes. Do not treat what you hear as investment, trading, or financial advice. Do your own research. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.